0: They want to be recognised for the training they do. They want to be recognised in terms of their wages. Uh, they want to be recognised in terms of their ability to put that training into practice through the scope debate that we've been having. It's really important that really at a time where we're struggling to get the number of healthcare professionals right across the sector that we are going to need for is growing faster than any other developed economy that is ageing through the ageing of the baby boomers. And has more complex chronic disease, let alone the sort of legacy of COVID. We need more enthusiastic young people to choose to become healthcare professionals, whether that's a nurse or a doctor or a pharmacist or a physio. We need more of them and we need to reward them properly, both in terms of recognising the skills they've accumulated and learned at university, but also in terms of their wages.
1: I think we should be, as governments and, and as communicators, encouraging people. Um, often to use their pharmacist as the first place that they go to, go early. You may actually avoid further interaction with the healthcare system if you're able to catch something early. I and mean, It goes to that whole preventative health early intervention model that I think should be the basis of our healthcare system going forward. So the opportunity to use the pharmacist as the other shop front of primary care in your community, much the same way as it was when I was growing up in my little town. There was the pharmacist and the GP, and they were both equally seen as the shop front for primary care. It's a great resource, and we should be making sure we maximise the use of that resource because these are highly trained health professionals.
2: Welcome to the Pharmacy Business and Career Network podcast, brought to you by the Pharmacy Guild of Australia. Focusing on pharmacy management and ownership. The PBCN Podcast supports the improvement and growth of your business performance with insights and advice from a range of industry professionals. The PBCN Podcast, supporting your journey every step of the way.
3: Hello, listeners. In this episode of the Pharmacy Business and Career Network podcast, we are bringing you something a little out of the ordinary. This episode comes to you from the Australian Pharmacy Professional Conference, which was held on the Gold Coast from the 23rd to the 26th of March 2023. APP, it's the largest pharmacy conference in the Southern Hemisphere with, well, normally up to around 6,000 delegates attending, but this year set a new record with 7,471 registered attendees. Minister for Health and Aged Care, the Honourable Mark Butler and Shadow Minister for Health and Aged Care, Senator the Honourable Anne Ruston, our representatives in Parliament attended APP to speak with the pharmacy workforce. We took the opportunity for our national president, Professor Trent Toomey, to sit down with them and find out more about what they think needs to happen as we move into the 8th Community Pharmacy Agreement. And of course, we are so glad to have made the time to get to know them a little bit better. As such, those were the voices that you heard at the start of the show. Now, you'll notice that the sound quality during these conversations isn't quite up to our normal standard, and that's because the room available at APP to record was a little bit echoey, but we thought it was still a great opportunity to bring the conversations to you, and so we recorded them, and we hope you forgive us for the sound quality this time around. To begin, here's the Guild's National President, Professor Trent Toomey, speaking with Minister for Health and Aged Care, the Honourable Mark Butler, at APP last month. Here's Trent and Mark.
2: I'm sitting here with the Federal Minister for Health, the Honourable Mark Butler. Hi Mark, how are you?
0: G'day Trent, what a terrific conference this is. Mm-hmm. It's amazing, it's a lovely part of the world to be in, but just amazing energy. 7,000 people tends to inject a bit of energy, but 7,000 pharmacists, it's, um, you know. You know, I've not been here when you've had the trade floor, mm-hmm. so getting through that and just seeing all the... Different sort of companies, the sectors engaging with is terrific. It's a dynamic place. And so before we
2: start, tell us a bit about Mark. So we know Mark the health minister, but um, what was what was the life previous to federal public service?
0: Well, I've been I've been in the parliament for more than 15 years, which uh, seems extraordinary so I reflect on it. It's a long time, and uh, for a big part of that time, I've had the privilege of being health portfolio. I was I was a in the health portfolio for four years in our last term of government under Kevin initially, and then under Julia for a few years. So a good a good engagement back then with Cos, who was president of the Guild. Uh, and then uh, for my sins was in the climate portfolio for nine years until I came back to health a couple of years ago. So it's an area I've been really passionate about. I had a lot of engagement with health and aged care, working for a health trade union before I came into the parliament. Um, mm-hmm deep engagement, particularly in aged care mm. and in mental health, probably two of the main areas I worked in for 15 years before I came into Parliament. Well, health care and climate change, two pretty boring areas Nothing happening in those two places. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but, I mean, just the privilege of working in really the big two transformational agendas of, of our country, particularly as the, the baby boomers age and we become a very different society uh, and as a really carbon-intensive economy like Australia's, faces the challenge, but also the enormous opportunities of moving into the clean energy economy of the 21st century. It's been a great privilege. I've been very lucky.
2: So community pharmacy agreements are a creation of um, Labor governments and guilds working together. And you've inherited a seventh community pharmacy agreement, um, one which you didn't have the opportunity to negotiate, but you'll also be um, the, the signer of the eighth community pharmacy agreement. But if we can just focus on the current one for a moment, Talk to me about the, the challenges and the opportunities as you see it with the current Seventh Community Pharmacy Group.
0: Well, there are enormous opportunities. Um, as I've as I said in the conference hall um, today, uh, just the feedback I constantly get from the community is the gratitude and the level of trust engendered by the fact that the community pharmacy kept their doors open through the, through the pandemic, even at the early very dangerous and frightening stages. So, the opportunities are there for everyone to see and, and, and you're seeing it through the work that the Guild is doing, particularly at a state level around scope of practice. So how do we harness them in the current CPA? Is obviously uh, work that we're doing, but um, it's obviously going to be a big theme next to next CPA when we come to negotiate that. In terms of the challenges though, as, as I've said in the whole, the, the problem with the current CPA is that it assumed that there would be no growth in community pharmacy programs. I mean, this was happening a lot in the healthcare budget for, really because the former government at a time of, of you know, the, the budget, the federal budget blowing out through COVID, the former government wanted to make their budget look better. So mm. they assumed that there would be no growth, that the same amount of money for this five years would be allocated to programs as were allocated in the previous five years. And that was just a fantasy. When mm. patients like these programs, they get value from them, they need them. And community pharmacies are terrific at delivering them. So of course there has been substantial growth which is terrific in terms of service delivery but has presented a really serious budget problem. We're now hundreds of millions of dollars short in funding the pharmacy programs as was committed, as was intended under the CPA and that is something we're going to have to deal with in the upcoming budget. I'm mm-hmm. really, really keen to say that you're not aligned there are 200. can of that. Is reasonable. I know, but 200 measures in the healthcare portfolio, eh? many of which have no dollars attached to them beyond 30th of June whatsoever. I see it in the in the hall. My health record gets switched off on 30th of June. Now we we'll go back to our fax machines, carry pigeons, um <laughs> signing scripts, signing scripts. No. So we're not going to do that. So there is a challenge just to keep the lights on on existing programs, as well as doing all of the things. First of all, we're committed to doing. At the last election, but also I think increasingly the health sector and the general population understand we need to pay attention to as we come out of this pandemic.
2: One of the most popular announcements of your government so far today has been uh, cheaper medicines reducing that co payment down from a record high of forty two fifty down to thirty dollars. How has that resonated with, with voters, with electors and with
0: your own party since it's come into place? Well, I think you know it's been incredibly popular. And it couldn't have happened at a better time, really, as cost of living generally across the board is going up, you know, through the supply chain problems that emerged from the pandemic, but also the impact on energy and food markets in particular that flowed from the illegal invasion of Ukraine by by Russia. Um, The idea that things are coming down, as I said in the hall, you know, Mel was telling me, a great pharmacist from the eastern suburbs of Melbourne, Pharmacy at Knox, was telling me her, her customers are coming up to the counter saying, I think you've made a mistake. <laughs> no, nothing's going down at the moment. So it's been terrific for people who are dealing with real cost of living pressures. This is going to be really tough on the our side. a lot of coming off fixed rate mortgages. Uh, the price of most things are going up substantially. So to have something come down is terrific for their hip pocket, but particularly something so important for their, for their lives as, yes. as health care. Uh, and I really just, again, pay tribute to the vision of the Guild in coming up with this policy. I mean, I'm the first to admit this was not our idea. Mm-hmm. This was the Guild's idea, which you prosecuted cleverly uh, with, with very clear evidence and research behind it and, um, and convinced both parties of government last election, so mm-hmm. no matter what the result of the election, this benefit would have been flowing to Australian patients. It's one
2: of the few things in the control of the Commonwealth Government that can provide cost of living relief that doesn't stoke inflation, right? Because, and that's the, the twin beast
0: that we're traveling with. Exactly, it was deflation, you yeah. know, it was the beauty of it, as is the childcare policy that can also effect on the 1st of July, very big yeah. uh, price relief for families using childcare, particularly parents where usually the mother wants to work a fourth or a fifth day, yeah. uh, which just doesn't make sense now when you add the tax rates to the childcare fees. So you get that enormous policy benefit, um, allowing mums particularly to make their choices, productivity benefits in the economy, but also putting it down with pressure on inflation.
2: Hmm. So it's uh, no surprise to you, we've made no secret of it, that we want to go further. We're not going to get a commitment off you today, clearly, but um, it's it's great that we've got such an able politician as you being on the expenditure review committee, not just in charge of the healthcare portfolio. So we look forward to having further conversations with you about what we can do for both general and concessional patients to return that principle of universal health care. Now, that turns my mind to the AIDS Community Pharmacy Agreement. It's something that you and I are going to be doing together with our respective teams in this term of parliament. Um, uh, what are your ambitions for the AIDS Community Pharmacy Agreement?
0: Well, uh, as, I, as I said in the Hall and earlier in this podcast, um, a lot has changed in pharmacy over the last five years yeah. and uh, and for the better, yeah. uh, you know, you have enlarged your footprint as a sector in the healthcare sector uh, and that's been embraced by Australian patients and Australian customers, customers of your, of your businesses yeah. and so obviously that is going to be a big theme of uh, mm-hmm. HCPA. Um, you know, I would I would not be entirely truthful if, I've, if I said I've, I spent a lot of time thinking about HCPA agenda. You know, we're very much focused on the immediate, on the immediate challenges of delivering a, a good budget in mm-hmm. May, dealing dealing with the challenges of the funding cliff for yeah. seven CPA, which I'm committed to doing given how important these programs are. But uh, these agreements have delivered extraordinary benefits, not just for uh, for pharmacies, but more importantly for patients. So building on the legacy that as I said and you know, goes back to the Guild and Bob Hall yes. doing that sort of thing. We piece. had Holland Johns in the room. Holland Johns who, who runs a pharmacy in my electric, the yeah. of suburbs of Adelaide. Uh, an extraordinary legacy mm-hmm. um, and we saw so much really good work done by that government working in partnership with industry at a time of real pressure and challenge on the economy to, to lay a solid foundation for industry sustainability that would underpin good jobs, but also underpin good services. And, gee, it's really stood the test of time. 30 yeah, years right. on, mm-hmm. um, who really, other than some, some sort of purist economists, who really argues with those those cornerstones of the CPAs that have, that have uh, been there now for three decades?
2: So um, I just want to give you the opportunity, and you've already committed to it, in writing, but just for the purpose of the podcast. So negotiating this agreement with this parliament is still something you're committed to.
0: Absolutely.
2: Um So just now our, our final question, I want to look to the future because we got to spend some great time in this room actually with the future of pharmacy, uh, our pharmacy students. But um, what did you hear from them that um, was of specific interest to you?
0: I heard a blend as I, as I do really across the sector um enormous excitement at the idea of working as an Australian health professional, um, particularly as a pharmacist. Like if you looked around the table, they were all really keen to, to work in community pharmacy. Maybe some will go into hospital pharmacy. Um but uh, you'll get them back. You'll we'll get you'll back. get them back. <laughs> Don't bring them um, people can but but, but but really, really keen to do it. But but you know on the side of challenge I guess um you know, they want to, they want to be recognised for the training they do. Uh, they want to be recognised in terms of their wages. Uh, they want to be recognised in terms of their ability to put that training into practice mm-hmm. through, through, through the scope debate that we've been having. And, uh, you know, I think it's, it's really important, um, as i said, out in the hall, that, that, that really at a time where we're struggling to get the number of healthcare professionals right across the sector that we are going to need, for a population that's growing faster than any other developed economy, that is ageing through the ageing of the baby boomers, and has more complex chronic disease, let alone the sort of legacy of COVID. We need more enthusiastic young people like the group that you and I met with earlier to choose to become healthcare professionals, whether that's a nurse or a doctor or a pharmacist or a physio, um, we need more of them and we need to reward them properly, both in terms of recognising the skills they've accumulated and learned at university uh, but also in terms of their wages.
2: Mm. And, and, you know, the Guild agrees with them. We just need to work with you on sequencing things like the doctor of pharmacy clause, mm-hmm. the national consistent rollout full scope of practice, and inevitably then a work value claim will come because it'll be back on a genuine change in scope and a genuine increase in productivity. But we just need the sequencing right.
0: Of course, and, we've, and we've, we've done that work in other sectors as well most recently being aged care, but an area I've been involved in for, for uh, longer than I would care to remember times <laughs> going back to the nurses' professional rates case, um, you know, as, as the qualifications of our healthcare professionals have increased and developed over the decades, it's important that first of all, you're allowed to actually put into practice what you've learned, but also that you be paid properly for that. We
2: agree. Uh, Minister, thank you very much for your time today. Um, and uh, it's great to see somebody that has a history in the health trade union movement now at the helm to pull the leaders on national policy to be able to effect some change. Thank you very much. Thanks, Trent.
3: The conversation you just heard was the Guild's national president, Professor Trent Toomey, speaking with Minister for Health and Aged Care, the Honourable Mark Butler at APP last month. Next up, we have Shadow Minister for Health and Aged Care, Senator the Honourable Anne Ruston, who also spoke with Trent. Here's Trent and Anne.
2: So I'd like to start by just giving you some time to introduce yourself to the pharmacists and pharmacy assistants of Australia. So who's Anne Ruston?
1: Well, born and bred in the little town of Renmark in uh, in South Australia. I grew up mum was a nurse, so obviously always had healthcare at the, the forefront of everything that was talked about around the kitchen table. Went off to Adelaide and worked in the wine industry for a number of years before returning back to my own community of the Riverland where I grew roses commercially for a number of years, which is is often uh, my greatest claim to fame as the largest commercial (laughs) rose grower in the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, And then uh, had the opportunity to go into the Senate in 2012, which I took, um, which has been an amazing journey, had a great opportunity to do a number of different portfolios, ranging from forestry and fisheries through social services, and now in opposition have the opportunity to uh, develop health, aged care and sport policy on behalf of the coalition, which is uh, very exciting, but a huge, huge range of portfolios to get your head around, that's for sure.
2: Well, and apart from Australia hosting the 2032 Olympics, I'd like to think community pharmacy is the most exciting part of your portfolio,
1: wouldn't it be? Oh, no, definitely
2: the first. Definitely the first, right answer. (laughs) <laughs> so healthcare in Australia, we've just come out of the largest global pandemic that we've had since the Spanish flu. What are some of the learnings you think that the Australian healthcare system have found out of
1: the pandemic? Well, I think the first thing we have learned is the fact that you can do things a lot more efficiently than perhaps we've been doing them in the past. The speed with which we were able to make the kinds of changes on the ground to support Australians through and never- being experienced before, experience, I think, demonstrates that we can do things a lot more efficiently and a lot more quickly. Also, innovation, technology and digitisation. Mm. We can definitely make a real difference in our healthcare system if we start being a little bit more innovative about how we approach things. By necessity, we had to do it during the pandemic. Mm. So we shouldn't lose that sort of forward-thinking approach to how we deal with healthcare going forward. And let's not drop back into the the bureaucratic processing and the bureaucratic rigidity that we've seen beforehand, we can do it, so let's keep doing it.
2: So during the time, as you say, a lot of innovation in the Australian healthcare system, and we would agree with you, let's hope those innovations become permanent and are not lost and viewed as temporary measures. Uh, Specifically in the pharmacy sector now, what are some of the innovations that when you look at our profession over the past two years that you think that our profession could do more in?
1: Well, I mean, I think you've only got to look at things like vaccination that we saw during the pandemic and I think the, the statistics are something like 9.5 million COVID vaccines were delivered through community pharmacy over the last two and a half years. And, you know, that compares with, I think, with about 14,000 total vaccinations performed by community pharmacy back in 2017. So I think it's demonstrated how community pharmacy can play a far greater role in that primary care um, delivery model. Uh, there's so many things that pharmacy could do that would give Australians really easy access because you can just walk into your pharmacy and um, and get some of these supports and helps and treatments. And so I think those are the kinds of things that have been demonstrated are possible through the pandemic.
2: So six thousand community pharmacies in Australia, four hundred and ninety nine in your home state. I know you've had the opportunity to visit several of them since you got in uh, to this portfolio, as you say, just nine months ago. Um, what are some of the expanded areas that do you think that community pharmacy can play vaccinations we've touched on, so there are obviously other vaccines, but um, what are some of the areas you think that if you were the health minister after the next federal election, that you would like to pick up the phone, talk to the guild and say, Trent, I need you to play a larger role in this area.
1: Look, I think one of the things that we need to do is we need to have a more health healthy literate nation, and the opportunity for the pharmacists and the pharmacy and the staff, the professional staff working pharmacies to be able to provide better information. Um, I think we should be, as, a, as governments and, and as communicators, encouraging people um, often to use their pharmacists as the first place that they go to um, to seek support. Go early um, and, and see you may actually avoid further interaction with the healthcare system. If you're able to catch something early, I mean, it goes to that whole preventative health, early intervention model that I think is, should be the basis of our healthcare system going forward. So the opportunity to, I suppose, use the pharmacist as the other shot front to primary care in your community, much the same way as it was when I was growing up in my little town. Mm. Um, you know, there was the pharmacist and the GP, and they were both equally seen as the shot front for primary care. Um, it's a great resource and we should be making sure we maximise the use of that resource because these are highly trained health professionals. So talk to me more about um, the
2: community pharmacists in your town in Renmark. I know you've got a special relationship with, mm-hmm. with some of those.
1: Well, I mean, my first community pharmacist in town was a godfather named Clacker John. Clacker I think, about 96 years old. Oh, he's still going. He's still going and he uh, <laughs> receive every time I go home because he lives just around the corner for a mum and then... Um, not uh, not shy of having a glass of wine of the anything. If <laughs> he knows I'm coming home, I mean, he'll always drop over. Uh, you know, fantastic guy, embedded in our community, um, and, you know, was as important a person in our community as the doctor was. Hmm. So, you know, my early experience with community pharmacy was a really, really good one, and that's extended to today. Um, also a great mate who actually currently owns the, the two pharmacies in my town, somebody else we to school with and probably known to many of your... Uh, your colleagues, uh, Nick Paniaris. So, you know, my experience of community pharmacy has always been one um, of great respect and appreciation for the role that they play in the community. And I'd like to think that we can continue that because it is, as I said, it's such a huge resource that we must make sure we exploit to the maximum benefit of the communities that rely on.
2: So 6,000 community pharmacies in Australia, as you say, two of them are in your hometown of Ranmarth. Um, How would you like to see the 6,000 community pharmacies differentiate themselves amongst each other? What would make you walk into the door of one community pharmacy over another?
1: Well, I think it's that relationship that you have Mm -hmm. with the professional staff that exists in that pharmacy. So I think a pharmacist is so much more than just somebody who's going to give you a script and walk out the door. I think it's the service provision. Um, It's that you know sort of scope of, of experience and knowledge and understanding that, that the pharmacist is able to assist you in your healthcare decisions and needs and choices so i think you know our community pharmacy is so much more than just the cost of the medicines that are dispensed and so i think we need to understand that these are highly trained health professionals that can provide so much more to you than than say just filling a script So let's talk about that.
2: So um, you were a very big supporter as um, the uh, Coalition's health spokesperson. um, I think I could call you during the last federal election because we had, of course, the retiring minister, Greg Hunt, and it was your leader, so um, the Honourable Scott Morrison, who uh, was the first mover and announced with your support the reduction in the general co-payment by $10 from $42.50 down to $32.50. If you have the privilege of serving as our country's health care minister, talk to me more about pricing and out-of-pocket expenses for Australian
1: consumers. Well, I mean, there's no bigger issue that sits for the general community in Australia right now than, than cost of living. And, you know, when we are seeing people going without prescriptions, um, you know, I do think that is something that we do need to be um, looking at about how we can get easy access to the most affordable medicines for Australians because it is primary health care. It is preventative. And if we can get people to be able to get easy and affordable access to medicines, then we um, often can stop them having their conditions accelerate into more tertiary um, healthcare needs, which we know are so much more expensive. So I'm a huge supporter of the PBS. I believe it is absolutely one of the foundational pillars of um, Australia's healthcare system. Mm. So I think we do need to be looking at the at the the economy of the provision of medicines because um, Early intervention can sometimes be some of the most economic um, intervention that you can you can have. It's not just it doesn't just make good sense from a medical perspective, it actually makes really good economic sense. You know, avoid the further interactions downstream, which is why I've always said health should be seen as an investment, if it shouldn't be seen as a cost centre. Because if you see it as an investment, you are invariably going to make it the most efficient system you can.
2: So, Senator, other than out of pocket expenses, which as you say in the current cost of living crisis is a huge issue for for our patients. The other big pillar or the other big issue playing on our patients' minds and our pharmacists' minds is scope of practice. Now, the things that healthcare professionals can provide to members of the Australian public is, by and large, a state and territory issue. So the federal government and the federal opposition have both made reassuring comments about their support for pharmacists practicing to the full scope. But what can we do? as a Guild, but what could you do as the Shadow Health Minister to help apply pressure to States and Territories to remove that regulation red type that prevents Australians from getting services from the pharmacy?
1: For the States and Territories to provide the best possible health care for the people that live within their states, you have to be encouraging them as, as Federal governments and Federal politicians that they should be looking at all ways that they can get Australians easier and better access to primary care. We know we have such a challenge before us in terms of general practice Um, Our GPs are under extraordinary pressure, and we know we've got a workforce crisis there. So, for the states and territories to be ignoring the opportunity to be able to provide Australians with primary care through whatever means that is, as long as it's safe and appropriate and it meets the scope of practice in terms of the qualification of the individual, uh, it would be very disappointing because that would be stopping Australians being able to maximise the health outcomes under a time of extraordinary constraint that we know at the moment. Because getting into a GP, Difficult in the city. You come and live where I live, and it's almost impossible. Um, so we do need to make sure that we um, putting all the pressure we can on whoever needs to have pressure put on them to make sure that the first and only thing that we are looking at is the access of Australians to primary care. It should be the patient. It should be the individual. It should be the person that is the main focus on anything and everything
2: we do. I'll well say. Uh, so to the vineologist, to the Rose Farmer, to the Senator for South Australia and the Shadow Health spokesperson, but uh, more importantly to the girl from Randmark, thank you very much for spending time with the Guild today. It's my absolute pleasure.
3: And again, that was Shadow Minister for Health and Aged Care, Senator the Honourable Anne Ruston. And it's clear that on both sides of Parliament, there is enormous support for pharmacists and the profession. A huge thank you to both ministers and their officers for working with us to make this episode possible and we hope you, the listeners, enjoyed getting to know them a little bit better. I've been your host, Daniel Oyston, and you've been listening to episode 120 of the PBCN podcast. The PBCN
2: podcast, supporting your journey every step of the way. For more resources, to access support or advice, or to view this episode's show notes, visit guild.org.au.